my god, Becky, look at her process. It is so big. She looks like one of those exploited academics. I mean, her praxis is just so big. I can't believe it's just so round. It's like out there. I mean, gross. I like big praxis. I cannot lie. We used to have two other cats, but um, our cat Olive unfortunately died two weeks ago, which was like the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And like, it's really hard to talk to people because both of my grandparents died over the last few years. And I'm like much sadder about my cat. And I also like somebody that I was dorm mates with for the first two years of university died like two weeks before my cat. Oh, and I'm having a really hard time not just being like, but my cat, my cat, it's so much more important <laughs> to me. Um, and like, I mean, you know, to, to be fair to you in terms of your, your grandparents and your dorm mate, I'm sure didn't, you know, crawl over your face at 4am every day for the they last never few stuck years. They butthole in my face. Right. Like, so ever. let's be honest here. Like, Grief is very much correspondent to the amount of butthole exposure we get. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I know, I know, no, it totally is. But like, so my partner and I, we always talk about how, like, imagine if your cat was a, like your housemate and you, everyone would just be like, you're being abused. That person's a sociopath. <laughs> you 100% need to like go no contact immediately. Mm -hmm. What kind of passive aggressive notes would they leave? I love this. I mean, I don't know. Again, like still can't forgive this. So I've, I've house sat for um, Louise's cat multiple times. The darling. The darling. First time, the darling. When we, we locked her in the kitchen because she kept waking up in the middle of the night and um, jumping onto the bed and clawing my partner's uh, like ass. Like she would, would sit on top of it and then just kind of sink in. With yeah, her, her because claws. she doesn't like, you know, her cats kind of curl into you. She doesn't. She sits on. Like so. Dominant. She, yeah, she just sits on your hip. Just like and you're like you can't um, be comfortable <laughs> <laughs> so he put her in the kitchen after one too many stabbings with the tiny claws and we woke up the next day to have our like oh, fancy bougie breakfast um and she'd taken out the middle of the sourdough loaf just out of pure spite i love it i love it, I love it so much georgia when we first got her because she was our first cat um and normally so like i'm not a morning person i think anybody who tries to do anything like before 10 a.m is a sociopath yeah agreed it's like I'm not here for it like when people at work are like oh can we meet at nine I'm like no no I'll be asleep um but my partner is and so normally he because he is like actually I think there's something wrong with him like for him sleeping in is 6 15 oh god like, awful what that's revolting um but it's good for us because it means that we each get like a solid three or four hours to ourselves at opposite ends of the day that nice. so that's quite nice but so he does the morning feed. And when we first got Georgia, maybe like a month after we'd rescued her um, or adopted her from the animal rescue, um, we'd gone out to like see friends. And in fact, I think we saw Sammy and Joe, Alex. Oh, so like, you know, yeah. that whole crew. And so then the next day we both slept in a bit. And I think it was like nine in the morning and she's used to getting fed at like six. So she came in, she'd come into the room, like the bedroom, like hours before and she was trying to wake me up. And what she normally does is like she escalates. So she'll start off just kind of like walking up and down me. And if that doesn't work, she'll kind of sit on me. And then she'll sort of start slapping me. And I try really <laughs> hard not to move or react because I don't want to like give in because like you don't negotiate with terrorists or whatever. And like I love Georgia, but I'm not turning into a morning person for my cats, like for anybody, including my cats. Um, but she just kept like escalating. And then, you know, she was like scratching at like the wardrobe and like, you know, just doing various things to try to wake us. And neither of us woke up. Like my partner was still asleep um, and I refused to move. Finally, she jumped on top of me and she jumped onto the duvet on top of my chest. She slapped me across the face. And then when I was looking at her, she stared me right in the eyes with her one little eye and had a poop. <gasps> no way! <laughs> Yeah, and she's never once pooped outside of her litter box ever, except for that one occasion. It was one hundred percent malicious. The darling has also once thrown a bread knife at me, like like when she was getting hungry, and it was that it was on the counter, and she um she she flung it at me. Yeah, without opposable thumbs, that's so impressive. Oh my god, if that cat had thumbs, we we would all be fucked. Like, <laughs> what is that advert? There's that advert about cats with thumbs. It's like a milk advert or something. 
Yeah, it's the milk advert. Like, what if cats had thumbs? And they they just wrongly assume that cats would drink milk. No, cats would fucking take over everything. Cats would fix austerity, let's be honest. Yeah, obviously, obviously. Cats would not drink milk, please. They would, like, organize a hostile takeover of the government and we'd all be living in a much better society. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I'd rather live under cat overlords, to be honest, <laughs> than Tories. <laughs> Oh, right. Sorry, I've just realized we've spoken for eight minutes about cats, which is fucking great. I could do this for like hours, like honestly. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard in love. All I wanted was to decolonize the academy. Hello and welcome to Lull My Praxis. Today we are chatting with Dr. Madhu Krishnan, Professor of African World and Comparative Literatures and current Director of the Centre of Black Humanities at the University of Bristol. Madhu's research considers contemporary African literature in the context of transnational, world and global literary production. She is currently the PI of a five-year mega-grant researching the contours of literary activism in sub-Saharan Africa. In one of her most recent publications, she claims that podcasts such as Long My Praxis, our activism, which we've decided constitutes as a five-star review of our work to date. In her timely claim that literary production holds the power to produce a new commons and sites of activist refusal, we can probably expect Priti Patel to try and ban African literature as part of the next Tory policing bill. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Madhu. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. And thanks, Louise. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's a thrill to have you on. Um, and especially because it's been... A hell of a year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Has it? I've just been really busy writing my 75 books, so I didn't really notice <laughs> anything going on. Oh my God. So, you know, the secret to writing 75 books is to, you know, get eight hours of sleep and work one to two hours of writing a day. And not get in your own way. I mean, there are two important ingredients that aren't on that list, which is stay hydrated and live, laugh, love. That's where I went wrong. It's because I'm a shriveled shell that doesn't drink enough water. And I know. Mine is like die, hate, cry. Have you tried yoga? <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a like Matt Pilates kind of person, but I like to do a Reiki practice. Uh, it's really, it's really great when you know my stable job at my institution is supported by well-being walks. I particularly enjoy when they bring llamas to campus because they're fluffy, and that then reminds me that I'm not being overworked. Uh, well, we got in our library a nature room um, to help students deal with exam stress and staff deal with exam administration stress. Is it the same room? Sorry. So you have the students freaking out and the staff that are setting those exams and marking those <laughs> exams in the same space. That doesn't sound very... Okay, so first of all, <laughs> it turned out to not be a room. It was just like a corner in like a kind of common area of the library. And then like, and I didn't even know what it was. It was like right next to like the photocopiers. And it was like, you know, from Ikea, you can get that carpet that looks a little bit like grass. Yes. Yeah. It was that. Mm, mm, and like mm -hmm. a beanbag chair. Wow. Amazing. And that cost, what did you say? 75,000 pounds? Incredible. 75,000 pounds. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, 10 HPTs redundant, 10 teaching fellows lost their jobs, but we got this great idea. Yeah, but hashtag worth it, Madhu, hashtag worth Absolutely. it. You know how it is. We normally kick off, I don't know if you've listened to any of our podcasts previously, despite the fact that they are obviously high up in ranking and activism. Mm -hmm. um, no, that's fine. No. <laughs> I know, I actually have listened to a couple of them because a bunch of people I know have been on them because we've had like Rachel Murray and like Jeff yes. Baker and all all the Bristol folk. So. Yeah, basically I'm just tapping into the Bristol veins of people that I used to know down there. <laughs> before you were run out of town. Exactly, before I was run out of town. So you will then know that it is tradition on Lama Praxis to perform um, badly your jingle, um, which you then have to try and guess how it is relevant to you and your work. So are you, yeah. are you ready? Yeah, I am. Wonderful. And please, I'm going to buy you a kazoo because I'm sick of doing it. I did find so it, but actually it's broken. For fuck's sake. <laughs> Did the cat break it? <laughs> I mean, possibly. Uh, probably. She's probably as pissed off as my partner with the kazooing noises. Um, True. Difficult. Okay, right, here we go. <clears throat> <laughs> 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 
She's gone. It's so bad. She left her chair. She left. She left the chair. <laughs> Sorry, the cat needed me to open a door. Ah, uh, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I have no idea. Maybe like the theme to coming to America. <laughs> no. no, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I can try it again. Okay, okay. Maybe don't do the like. Don't do, don't do those bits. Just do the name <laughs> tune. <laughs> Not helping. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, now I've forgotten how it goes. Um, oh. I don't think it sounds like that. <laughs> I'm never going to get it. Don't just shout the words into the kazoo. <laughs> not the same tune every time <laughs> wow i feel attacked I mean, uh yes so i mean louise do you want to reveal it for us that was uh toto africa oh <laughs> oh my god now i totally get it thank you is that um I actually am like obsessed with that song because one time um we were going to karaoke at the lanes in Bristol you know they have the karaoke room upstairs and it was my partner's birthday I think it might have been his 40th and so we had like maybe 20 friends with us because this was like back when you could do that and the group before us was going slightly late um and like that's fine because they were like well you can just go late but then like they came out and they were like oh we're just gonna do one more song why don't you guys come in and sing it with us and we were like uh, okay <laughs> Awful. and it was totally toto's africa except the lanes karaoke room is like so low budget and so shit like, the lyrics were wrong <laughs> so instead of saying um I don't even remember actually the real words now, but basically for the chorus, it said, I guess it rains down in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and it's basically Incredible. the funniest thing ever. I think about it every time. I think about it at least once a day. I'm like, I guess it rains down in Africa. You know, a continent not at all famous for its rainy season. <laughs> <laughs> also like down, down in. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. It rains Great. down in all Africa. Down in all Africa. That place, that singular place. <laughs> I mean, it's like right up there with, um, do they know it's Christmas? I mean, do they? But do, do, they, they, do they know it's Christmas? But do, do they? they? Well, I mean, there are an awful lot of Christians. So yeah, I think they probably do. First of all, have you not heard about Pentecostalism <laughs> and like colonialism? But secondly, there's that line that's like, there's no snow in Africa. And whenever I hear it, I'm like, have you not heard of Mount Kilimanjaro? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody involved with Band-Aid ever hear of Mount Kilimanjaro? No. Don't don't question Bono's (laughs) geography. Institutions when told to stop centering the whites, says het male be like... So, you know, actually, this leads us into um, the first question, because, I mean, I think it actually will help to unpack why we have set this song for you as your your chosen um, theme tune. Because in 2015, the co-founder of Toto, David Page, uh, don't care if that's not how it's pronounced, I'm going to fuck it up anyway. He declared that their hit song Africa was not actually about the love of a man for another person, but rather about, quote, a man's love for the continent of Africa. At the time wow. of writing, Page had never actually been to Africa and based the entire landscape descriptions of the song from an article he read in National Geographic. So as somebody who studies spatial imaginaries of Africa, what does this tell us? Um, what does the example of Toto reveal to us about sort of the cultural constructions of Africa? I mean, it reveals how totally fucking stupid so many Europeans and North Americans are, for one thing. <laughs> are you joking? Um, you know, it's like, it's just one of those things that's totally banal for how unsurprising it is. Like, of course, he's never been to Africa, which isn't a country, just FYI. It's like really, really, really big. Like, if you ever look at um, you know, there's those maps that um, are a corrective to the Mercador projection, which mm-hmm. is what most of us are used to from school. And you know how mm-hmm. like that that map like artificially inflates the size of Europe and North and um, 
particularly Canada and the United States. Um, but if you look at a map that's been corrected, Africa is massive. Mm -hmm. It's a massively huge continent. It's the second biggest continent after Asia. Um, having been, I've been to, I mean, I don't know, I don't keep count, but I've been to probably like 15 to 20 countries out of the 54 to 55 on the continent. And like, they're vastly, vastly, vastly different. Yeah. But does um, it snow though? Well, only in Mount Kilimanjaro. Only <laughs> Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, but like, you know, it's just completely ridiculous. But I think that that is very much like the way the continent is represented in um, a certain United States and European media where you do just think, you know, I mean, I know people like even my own parents when, you know, I'm going on research trips, like back when we were able to travel, you know, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to be going to Cape Town because I, I have like work I need to do there and I need to like see people and do stuff. And they would be like, but is it safe? <laughs> I'm like it's Cape Town it's fucking Cape Town it's like so boring so safe so cosmopolitan you know it's like such a Europeanized city I or, mean you've got to watch out for those penguins at Boulder Beach though okay they will steal your sunglasses so. I actually had a really embarrassing penguin encounter in Cape Town where I basically like went completely hysterical started hyperventilating and crying because i just never in my life thought i would get to like see a penguin like not in a zoo and it was just like and i hadn't realized there were penguins in, in like the, the western cape i was because like i don't read national geographic so obviously the yeah and that's the missing like, lyric from band yeah. aids about yeah. the line about penguins <laughs> they don't even have penguins so my colleague and I went to Robin Island and we got off the bus and there were all these penguins and I just completely, like, I didn't even know how much penguins meant to me until I saw them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was just stood there like sobbing and like hyperventilating and she was like, I guess you like penguins. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this was on Robin Island as in like where the, the prison was. Um, for Mandela and, and you were hyperventilating over the penguins and not the atrocities related to the apartheid just so I get it straight absolutely absolutely so there's that and also like the thing with um if you go to Robin Island is it you have no control over where you go because you can't just like go to Robin Island um you have to take this ferry and if you take the ferry then you have to get their bus tour mm -hmm. and there's no choice in the matter you can't just be like I'm gonna do my own thing on Robin Island which like would be a weird thing to do right like <laughs> <laughs> just chilling vibing keeping it a hundred here on Robbie Robbie Isle Isle um like people don't do that right um, but the bus tour takes you around the whole island and you actually spend the whole first part of it like just learning about the landscape and like that sort of stuff. Um, it's only like at the very, very, very end that they take you to the prison and then they take you through the prison and it's only at the very, very, very end of that tour that you see Mandela's cell and that only lasts for like five seconds. I mean, I also was thinking it was like the time I saw Sir Mix-a-Lot in concert when I was 18. Um <laughs> where he obviously waited for the last song to play Baby's Got Back, but then mm -hmm. he also managed to fit in two other songs in the middle of Baby's Got Back because he knew as soon as we heard Baby's Got Back, we were all just going to leave. And it's like the same <laughs> thing with Robin Island, right? Like once I see Mandela's cell, I'm out of there. <laughs> Unless there's a penguin in the cell, in which case, just there for days. I almost asked if Mandela was maybe a penguin, but I'm going to recant that. Um, what? <laughs> well, no, but I think that he inspires emotions in people that are similar to those that the penguin inspired in me. <laughs> kind of beautiful. It's really beautiful. It's very beautiful. I also, I mean, a really pertinent question that I have as well is: Does Sir Mixalot have other songs? Yes, yes. There's actually at least two others that I know the name of. Um, one of it just jump on it which you should know. Mm -hmm, okay. Like everyone knows, jump on it. But the other one that I remember from that night was a really beautiful love song about um, lovers who meet in a traffic jam and it's called Put Them on the Glass. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. And by then we mean emotions. I, I believe we mean emotions. Yes. Right. I, yes. I, yes. 
I don't think it's a reference to any like female anatomy parts. I think it's no, 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 no. Emotions, <laughs> only emotions. Yeah. <laughs> Free penguin Mandela. Okay, so I think there's something interesting, charismatic megafauna misdirection going on here. Like, <laughs> to what extent are penguins just a misdirection from the histories and atrocities of apartheid? It's like, look at the look at the geography. Also, horrible things happened. Bye. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. But yeah, I mean, it's like a very like all pervasive sort of thing, right? Like when I was working on my first book, um, the the editors basically were like, "We need you to write more of an introduction about like the normative kind of." representative discourse or like the discursive construct or scaffolding that mediates the way Africa exists in a global imaginary. And honestly, it took two seconds. I literally just Googled like Africa magazine and like all of these articles. National Geographic came up, put some Toto on in the background, just bashed out their intro. I at one stage was like, oh, it'll be fun to write about like fashion photos, like Vogue. So I just put like Vogue, skinny, blonde Africa. And like, again, like thousands of images come up of like Kira Knightley in like safari gear, like crying. In front I'm of now just going, I'm flashing back to that season of America's. That's America. where I was going. Oh my God, the best season ever. <laughs> it was the fucking worst. Do you know, like. It was so awful. Cycle four. I've only ever watched the first cycle. Of oh, you should, you should watch no, the African This one cycle. is African horrendously <laughs> offensive. So like, my thing. So this is the one is notorious because Kenya had put on some weight and they kept like showing her at the buffet, like in the editing. And uh, when they had to do a photo shoot with us, like African animals, they made her the elephant. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just like the worst, like, oh, it's so offensive. It's just, it was was really awful. And she kept doing like with her arm, like trying to be, they were like, okay, no, no, but like be an elephant, but like make it sexy. Make it sexy. You have to sell it. Make it fashion. Be an elephant. Now be a sexy elephant. Now be a sexy elephant, baby. And like the same cycle, that's the one where also they had to um, be the seven deadly sins. So obviously she was gluttony. (laughs) They just kept going with it. It was so offensive, but I also kind of love it. Oh God, I mean, I forgot that part. Yeah. It's totally offensive, but you just have to laugh at stuff. I mean, if you don't find it funny, it's like, I don't know. I feel like if if I didn't laugh at the stupidity of it, like I would probably just be super depressed all the time. Oh yeah, it's like, it is horrific, but also I love it. Because I'm a trash human being. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I meant absolutely, you're a trash human being. No, I mean, no, she is. We've had uh, uh, actual verified feedback yeah. from a man. On yeah, the internet. a white man on the internet called me a straight white man on the internet called me trash um, for my appearance on another podcast because I had the audacity of saying that maybe Charles Dickens and the way that he tried to put his wife in an asylum, maybe he was acting like an entitled straight white man. Um, but trash. Well, how very trash. dare you. I know, right? How very yeah. dare you. I also discussed the fact that Charles Dickens, when he wanted to leave his, his wife, literally built a wall in the middle of their bedroom. And apparently that's not, that's not the actions of an entitled straight white man. And I am trash for saying that they could be. Yes. No, I mean, that's like totally normal, rational behavior. I know, like, I know. Who amongst us hasn't built a wall directly in the middle of their bedroom? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the ultimate power it's move. It's been a hard year. Yeah, it's been a hard yeah. year. <laughs> but yeah, I'm trash for pointing that out. Um, yeah. But I just, I, I did feel like I'd made it. Like, I don't know. Have you ever had a nice hate comment? I love a hate comment. I actually haven't, and I don't know. Oh, you've not hit your career peak then yet, Maddie. There's still there's still room to go. Yeah, sorry. Actually, I, I see your grants, I see your publications, I see your success, but I raise you. I see your 75 books, but... Yeah, I raise you, some man on the internet making a horrible comment. <laughs> I'm a woman of colour working in the UK in a public-facing job, and I haven't even gotten a death threat. It's very like. What are you, you even know? doing with your job? I, <laughs> You're obviously not doing your job. Exactly. Sorry. I mean, there goes my impact case study, right? They're going to be like, uh, <laughs> nobody's ever said they want to rape your corpse. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. I mean, do you think this is also though because like um you've recently become a British national. So have you actually found yourself kind of defending the quote like good bits of empire and then like wanting to like suddenly really protect Churchill's statue? Like, is that why I mean, do you think? It's less like of a wanting to protect and more of a wanting to seduce. Oh yeah. Like mm. there's just something about statues of Churchill that like really gets me wet. Erotic. You know? So erotic. Mm. Yeah, it's like the opposite of a vagina dryer. <laughs> <laughs> a gusher. Is that what we would call it? I yeah, no, that's yeah. totally right. Yeah. A wide on. A wide yeah. on. Yeah, you heard that one? A wide on. I mean there's nothing mm-hmm. like seeing a bloated old imperialist racist cast in concrete or copper or whatever it is they make statues out of i don't know to like really like it just does it for me you know mm-hmm. and this is why like you come up with stuff like this and actually the gammon demographic is like she's a good one that one absolutely yeah. absolutely she feels like churchill how i feel about churchill <laughs> oh my god she also wants to shag that statue oh my god incredible <laughs> yeah but no homo yeah oh, yeah no, no, no. <laughs> Mask for mask only. What's your academic Tinder bio, Maddo? Seduce us as if we were at a conference. I've been thinking about this a lot and it's really <laughs> hard because I like um, have been with my partner in a relationship basically since I was a fetus um so the whole like online app dating thing is like foreign to me but I pretty much decided it would have to be something like the only small p I want to see is in my pan-Africanism oh <laughs> nice like it okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we enjoy we enjoy mm-hmm. so Louise let's confer what would you do do you want to know more I do want to know more I mean What's the problem with a small p? I don't get it. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I guess they say it's uh, not the size of the waves, it's the motion of the ocean. But, you know, I've always thought, you know, there is a reason. I, I mean, I'm not a size queen or anything, but I am very committed <laughs> to small p pan-Africanism. That's all I'll say. Interesting. So what's what's the problem with large p pan-Africanism? <laughs> mm. Ooh, this pan-Africanism is so big. <laughs> Get it? Um, so basically, basically, it's 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 a thing that um the scholar and poet Tipsy Gaji writes about in her amazing book Africa in Stereo is that you can distinguish or there is a kind of distinction between what we in the discipline call big P pan-Africanism and small P pan-Africanism, where big P pan-Africanism refers to like things like the African Union. Um, so, or like the Wasset refers to like institutionalized kind of super status, um, multinational kinds of organizations that do various sorts of things. Um, that's in contrast to small p pan-Africanism, which is more about the kind of looser or more culturally based or more kind of um, informal or ephemeral or organic, however you want to see it, kinds of associations and solidarities and internationalisms that occur across the continent. So like big p pan-Africanism is basically like the state plus plus, whereas Mm -hmm. small p Mm -hmm. pan-Africanism is like the people. Oh, okay, yes, no, yeah, small p is definitely Mm -hmm far more sexy definitely yeah definitely yeah yeah a lot more variety there a lot less like you know strict (laughs) yeah and like also I think it's where a lot of really interesting work happens I mean the problem um I just read actually a book about big p pan-africanism where the sort of premise was that the problem with it is that it's run by heads of state and heads of state have a vested interest in keeping things as they are because they don't okay, want to. Okay, so we're getting closer. Small P, no head. Interesting. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And that's actually um, going to be on my gravestone someday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. It's one of the interesting things about a lot of your work is this focus on questions of um, 
internationalism, transnationalism, and as you say, kind of like, I don't know, the different sort of categories that we filter things into around kind of ideas of Africa, uh, and particularly in terms of its like kind of global publication, like market. Um, I don't know if you can tell us a little bit more about what it is that you do with that kind of strand of your work, because it's not anything that you do. (laughs) I mean, like, I'm really interested, as I said, in kind of small p pan-Africanisms and the way in which print cultures and literary production and increasingly like digital literary productions produce these kinds of affiliations and topographies, both with the diaspora, but my interest is really on the continent. I'm less interested in the diaspora, not because it isn't interesting. I think it is really interesting. And and it's almost impossible to tease these things out because of, you know, the kind of complexity of entanglements. I just think there are people who do work on the diaspora better than me. And I prefer to sort of focus on continental things, but I'm also really interested in kind of Africa-centered transnationalisms. And it's like, it's quite a strange thing. And I think it is one of these consequences of the kind of discursive apparatus that tells us that Africa is a country. Um, Like once, for instance, I remember um, I was asked to contribute to um, something about transnationalism. And I sort of proposed to do something that was going to be comparatively looking at Kenya and Nigeria and different sort of of like locally circulating print cultures or ecologies. Mm. They were like, no, we said transnationalism. And I was like, um, right, those yeah. are countries. They're like super far away from each other and like really not in any way similar. Like I can't really think of many similarities between the two of them. But, you know, essentially like the, the person who was organizing this, like it became really clear from this back and forth that they didn't think something could be transnational unless it was coming through Europe and North America. And I just found that super weird. And so I think, because I think that for me, what's really interesting is thinking about what's going on that we don't know about as scholars in the UK um, or the global north more broadly. Um, And I've been reading a lot lately about this. There's one scholar who I, whose work I really, really admire um, and has been really um, productive for me. So it's this woman called Maura de Wonetajimobi, who is at, I think, UC Davis in California in America. But she's been writing a lot about this idea of publicness and like the way that she approaches the whole idea of the public kind of very quickly dispenses with the whole conceit of like the Habermasian public sphere. Instead, what she talks about is like publicness is being in the public, but there's different ways of being in the public. So, you know, like you could look at something like somebody's self-published pamphlet that they produced three copies of in their front room in Bristol and gave to like their three friends that's in the public mm-hmm. but it's not in the public the same way as like David Copperfield or something like that right um so she talks about the kind of um the kind of intersection between publicness and visibility and specifically the way in which certain kinds of publicness inheres more visibility than others and mm-hmm. and she has this concept she calls critical visibility and the kind of different circuits of visibility that different cultural forms and forms of intellectual production and intellectual discourse has. So, you know, she'll talk, for instance, about like, um, like if we think about like, like there are all these internet forums that are like, let's say Nigeria specific, where people are actually having these really intense debates about like African literature or like various kinds of things. Um, but they're not visible if you're situated in the UK because we don't know about it. So there's sort of different models of critical visibility and publicness that are associated to things. And so this is something I'm really interested in my work is thinking about the kinds of things that are perhaps um, accorded different or different levels of publicness and different levels of visibility. And for me, it intersects with my interest in space because I'm kind of interested in thinking about it across different scales and how those different scales interlock and intersect. Um, Because, I mean, overall, like my overarching kind of feeling is I think a lot of what is accorded visibility and publicness for like us in the UK, for instance, is actually like not great work. It's usually things that conform in various ways to like a very neoliberal, like liquid modern kind of structural feeling, which is super boring. It's like this really banal, vacuous cosmopolitanism. It's not that interesting. And it's not to romanticize the stuff that we don't see because there's a lot of really boring, vacuous stuff as well that is not given. We've all been on internet forums. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) 
but it's just there's different ways of representing things there's different stories there's different narratives there's different kind of discursive ecologies and I think like for me that's what's quite interesting so I try as a scholar based in the global north to center my work on the things that are potentially less visible because I think it's actually really important in, in making things more visible and also kind of archiving and I think you know in terms of kind of like a broader kind of activism around the distribution of intellectual capital. F. Going back to this question of big P, small P, like as an academic <laughs> in a, <laughs> coming from an institution in the global north and trying to enter these kind of more, as you say, organic, invisible publics, like do you see, like does your big P get in the way? Um, I mean, my big P gets in the way of everything I do, but that's not really <laughs> my fault. Um, and I, I learned to live with it. You just change the way you hold your weight. Um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, like, for me, I've been, like, I think this is, like, one of the big tensions, right, with, like, particularly the United Kingdom kind of state of affairs around AG, and especially with things like RAF and, like, the sort of focus on metrics is there's a kind of disjuncture and temporalities, I think, where like we're supposed to be doing stuff super fast. And like you even see it with like UKRI or whatever, like when um, like a highlight notice comes out, you know, or like there might be like three months notice to like put in a grant under this highlight notice or like do this, that, or the other. And like you can't really cultivate a relationship with someone in three months, in my opinion. Um, and you know, whereas I think particularly when there's always going to be these tensions and differentials, you know, based on the fact that like you're an academic in the global north trying to work with like independent literary producers in the global south, it takes actually a super long time to develop those relationships. Like one of the big um, projects that I've been working on is with Bakwa, which is a Cameroonian literary activist organization. Um, you know, they're like a publishing house, a magazine, a podcast, a website, various other things. And that really started because I met their founder, Zakashu McKeven, in like 2015 or 2016. But we didn't start working together for years. Like we, we met at a festival in Uganda. And then we kind of kept bumping into each other in different festivals, like all over the continent. And then we kind of just started like, you know, the occasional WhatsApp, the occasional chat, because we had kind of shared interests and all these sorts of things. And then, you know, like four years later or like three years later, that was our relationship was in a place where like we could really productively work together. And we do work together really well now. Now we do loads of stuff together. But it's like those years of like actually forming a friendship and a connection. Um, yeah. And also like there's some people where they just are never going to want to work with you because what's in it for them, you know, and I think that's yeah. really fair. I think it's, you know. It's isn't that like part of ethics? Like one of the first principles of ethics is you have the right to refuse and you know, you have yeah. the right to not talk to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something that like even with people who I've known for ages, like another person who I've worked with for ages and ages and ages is um this Ugandan writer called Doreen Bangana. She's the author of um a short story collection called Tropical Fish that won the Commonwealth Prize years ago. And she used to live in America, but she's been back in Uganda for a really long time. And she runs this organization called Mawazo Africa Writing Institute, um, which specifically focuses on long form, like book length workshops and this sort of stuff. But anyway, so she and I have known each other for a long time because we actually have a friend in common um, back in America. And she and I were talking about it once and she was saying like, yeah, there's always going to be a power differential because, for example, like for an academic, you know, we go and we do these projects and we get get or extract this data and like publish our stuff and then we get promoted on the back of it and we have our salaries and all this sort of stuff whereas the people we're working with who are really doing the more essential work the more indispensable work you know might be like very precariously employed or might be hustling or might be squeezing in like the literary work they do around a day job or two and so it's always really tricky in that sense. Like there's always a big disparity um, in that sense. And I don't think you can really avoid it. I feel like the only way to mitigate it is like, like for me, I, I'm very hesitant to do projects with people who I, I don't know reasonably well for these reasons. Yeah, no, for sure. You don't want to replicate that sort of horrible power structure if you don't have to and just totally like, you know, 
use the word extract, that notion about extracting information, data, these sorts of things. It's, it's, it's totally replicating those horrible colonial systems of power, which is the whole fucking problem in the first place. No, absolutely. And I think that like, it's, it's not even replicating. I think it's part of the same thing, right? Because it's, mm. it's an extractive economy, whether what you're yeah. extracting is knowledge or, you know, coltan, it's still part of an extractive economy. Mm. And like, so thinking about this kind of like extractive economy, like it's kind of, because I was thinking, having read the blurb, I didn't read the full thing, I'm so sorry. Uh, but <laughs> one of your wonderful books, Contingent Canons, you talk about the kind of creation of African literature, capital A, capital L, I think, as this kind of like global market category. Mm-hmm. And the kind of the little bits I did browse through, I was kind of like, is this like the scramble for Africa, but with books? Yeah, totally. It absolutely is. I mean, at the end of the day, publishing's a business right? Like publishing's business and it's about money and it's about making sure things sell and are profitable and create a market. I mean, we can have whatever highfalutin ideals we have about literature, but at the end of the day, publishers want to make money. You don't meet a lot of publishers who are happy, or at least not like the big five. Like, do you think the big five multinational publishers have even the faintest interest in anything but making money? And that's not to say that that's how the people who work there are. Like, lovely people work at, like, Penguin Random House or wherever. But that is what publishing is for. It's about profit and it's about business. And certain things sell and certain things don't. So that in that book is actually one of the core arguments um, that I try to sort of weave in is that there's a reason why certain books and certain authors get this kind of market appeal so if you had to so if for the purposes of the podcast like if you had to name names like what african authors are overhyped like oh, i'm totally happy to say this because i say it on social media all the time i literally wrote an entire chapter of my book about it shimamanda ngozi adichie is so overrated it makes me want to scream somebody talks about her as an example of a good writer i'm like you got to be joking me she's a good storyteller an okay writer and seems like a terrible person (laughs) (laughs) say more say more tell us more i don't know enough about her i just know um so like there was a whole situation um i really recommend african literature twitter because it's like so drama filled it's totally amazing like there's always some big drama happening there's always someone falling out with someone and it's always like the best um even when you like actually are friends with everybody on both sides you're still like yeah this is so good I just want to you know <laughs> um but so like she god I don't even, like she's a turf firstly oh like, no really? yeah she's a turf that's frustrating and when that came out that she's a turf which like people should have known she said like weird stuff for a really long time where like it was mm. fairly obvious that she was a turf but like she didn't say i'm a turf but she basically said i'm a turf like she no didn't say like, that yeah I mean, yeah no no one says they're a turf yeah. like but she did the whole like i just think women who are born women and grow up as women trans women can never understand or be women and it's like that's <laughs> that's terpy fuck you you know you can't fucking say that or you can say it but i'm gonna say you're a dumb turf um so mm. this whole thing blew up and like all sorts of different people were like weighing in there was this huge fight on twitter about it um where like some people were super 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 brave um particularly like um aqua Amezi, who's um they're a trans non-binary transhuman writer who are just doing mm-hmm. really interesting things like they were really honest about like Chimamanda's transphobia to them um and then like various other writers were like yeah yeah you can't speak your words like it was just crazy so anyway yeah so she seems like a terrible person but also her writing is really in my opinion trite um, right. I, I actually think her first book, Purple Hibiscus, is her best novel. So that's like a Bildung's roman. It's like told from the perspective of a teenage girl. And it's it's actually really good. Like, I, I actually do genuinely like that one. Like, there's a lot of stuff. I know, I know you do, because the look on your face is like, fuck, I wish I didn't. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of really interesting stuff about like childhood and education and religion and family. Like, it's, it's nice. I somehow have managed to skip teaching it, which now maybe I'm even pleased about, is that Half of the Yellow Sun, it seems to be set on like so many undergrad courses these days in the kind of bid to 
you know, decolonize. Yeah. So Half of the Yellow Sun was actually one of the texts I wrote about in my PhD thesis. And like, to me, like, that's like, like my experience of reading it to me is my experience of reading Shimamanda's work, where like the first time I read it, I really liked it. And then every subsequent rereading, I disliked it more and more and more. And now I just basically think it's like a Mills and Boone with a fancy cover. I mean, it's, <laughs> the thing with Half of the Yellow Sun is it's it's really problematic because so it's about the Nigerian Biafran War or the Nigerian Civil War, the Biafran War, depending on your ideology, how you want to like um, call it. Um, and like half of yellow sun is really problematic because it's it's really blind to class issues in the war and mm. it's really blind to like minority ethnicity issues. And it's just not a great book. And I feel really confident saying that because a few years ago I was at a dinner for work and David Olushoga was there and we were talking and he actually said to me, I hate Half of the Yellow Sun. It's a really bad representation of the war. And I was like, oh, I think that too. And now whenever he sees me, he's like, you're the lady that hates Half of the Yellow Sun. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, if David Olushoga, OBE, BBC, fancy historian <laughs> agrees with me, then I think I'm right, factually. Um, and Americana is one of the worst books I've ever read. It's <laughs> so... Like, talk about a book that's 200 pages too long. Like, if the book was just the bits about Obinze in the UK, I would have found mm -hmm. it really interesting. But, yep. like, Pamela, like, no, no, thanks. No, no, couldn't be. Couldn't be. Thanks, I hate it. Like, I describe that book <laughs> as the Zoolander of contemporary African literature because really what it's <laughs> about is, like, how incredibly hard it is to be, like, so, so incredibly good. No, it really is. That is exactly it. Oh my god. Oh yes, that's how I'm gonna describe it to anyone who asks me about that book from now on. Yeah, I don't feel like I've missed out no, there. No, you haven't. Like, whatsoever. It also makes no sense. This woman in this book basically becomes wealthy through a blog that she didn't monetize. Like, there's no talk of like hashtag SpawnCon. There's no talk of like you know <laughs> anything like that. And then she gets a fellowship at Princeton because her blog is so great and has made her so wealthy. And it's like literally like a blog spot blog, but she didn't monitor. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Hear the subaltern speak. Because like, well, because you do also do like a lot of stuff with digital environments, right? In terms of like the dissemination and that idea of like literary activism that is so kind of pivotal to your work. So like, should we just stop reading shit novels that are not actually like the great African novel because they're actually technically more like shit and American or like at least monetized? Absolutely. I think I 100%, like I'm one of those people where I don't finish books unless I have to for work because life is too short and you just got to think about it like this you only know about the tiniest percentage of what literature is actually out there. And of what you know about, you're only ever going to read a tiny percentage of it in your life. So life is too short to read the Zoolander of African novels, you know? And like, I personally would rather read like a really funny like blog than like a shit novel. Like, I don't know. I just think like, we accrue so much morality or like moral value and virtue to the form in which our reading comes when it's like mm -hmm. actually like what is qualitatively different between me yeah. reading someone's blog and me reading someone's shitty memoir you know yeah no for sure so like you know if you had to again like name things that you think are great like what have you been reading that you generally are like you know what people need to be engaging with this, reading this, are there texts? So I haven't really been reading for the last couple of weeks since my cat died because it's, I've just like been in a morass of grief, which apparently the way I respond to it is by watching like American reality television from the mid 2000s. Um, I mean, if you haven't watched America's Next Top Model Cycle 4, I'm just, you know, not that I want to prolong your grief cycle because I do think that, pets are family and is totally legitimate grief but get on that <laughs> like before america's next top yeah, model kenya the elephant kenya. justice for kenya the elephant I, I will say like in terms of novels the novels that i really liked this year um and one thing that i should say is i realized this thing about myself a few years ago 
which is that I like reading as an act. I don't necessarily like the stuff I read. Like I'm totally happy just like reading like a DVD instruction manual or whatever. Like I just like reading, um, but I don't necessarily like novels that much. So I think the best novel that I read in the last decades, definitely Milkman by Anna Burns. Like that's hands down the best novel that I've read. Like, I mean, a strange I choice for African literature, but we'll go. With I know, it. Like, <laughs> I know, I know. But you know, I think that actually, so there's actually a lot of people who do really interesting comparative work between Ireland and Africa, like various parts of Africa, um, in terms of imperial history. So there is like a thing there. Mm. Um, I really, really loved Kumaza Mengitse's *The Shadow King* which was on the Booker Prize shortlist this year. So it's not like an invisible text by any means. Um, but I, I just, I really liked, um, because a lot of the books about, or, or kind of like mediates itself through photography. And I just found that as somebody who's quite visual, I found that like there aren't actual photographs in the book, but it's, it's mm. that's just like a sort of central thing there. So I thought that that was really, really, really great and really amazing. Although I found it really intense. It was like, so it was, the reason I said those two books is because those are both two books that I found really intense. And I'm normally a super fast reader. Mm-hmm. Like normally if I start a book, I'll finish it like at least within a day, if not like maybe two days. Like I'm not the sort of person who lingers over books. Um, but both of those books took me ages to read because I could only really manage like 20 or 30 pages at a time because of the intensity. Um, so this is going to be super out of character, but so probably the book that I love the most in the last few months is um, Yvonne O'War's book, Dragonfly Sea, which is, oh, oh my God, Alex, you in particular would love it because it's about the sea. It's about water. It's amazing. Um, It's like this amazing book that's all about kind of like reconstituting the sort of erased or rendered less visible history of the Indian Ocean or Swahili Oh, okay, yes, I've had this on my, like, wish list. Um, but it also, it also is, like, kind of like a romance, and it's, like, maybe, like, the most intense and best romance I've ever read, but it's also, like, this really important... Would you call it wet? It's wet, it's erotic. It's vast, gaping and wide, like the Indian Ocean herself. <laughs> Dripping. Macaroni in a pot. Um, no, it's just it's just amazing. Like the the use of language is like incredible. Like the prose is beautiful. Um, in what it does in terms of space, I think is really interesting. What it does in terms of photography. And like it also is like like probably the most affective within any love story that I've read like in years. Yes, of course they fucking do. I just want to bring it back a little bit then to this like concept of literary activism because for people who don't necessarily know what that is so like because that's obviously such a core part of your work and I wonder like as a Bristol resident what do you think that like burning police vehicles and throwing statues in rivers can like teach us about literary activism? I'm going to assume that all of those people participated in independent literary initiatives, which is where they decided that it was time to please the commons. So I think it teaches us that. Um, No, I mean, I think that like, you know, like less flippantly, I think what it teaches us is that like what it's all about, no matter what it is you're doing, is about seizing the means of production. It's about seizing the means of production, creating your own infrastructure and refusing the imposed infrastructures, which perpetuate and replicate and reproduce violence. So, you know, throw that statue in the river, burn the police car, A-C-A-B, by the way, and do not edit that out. That is, um, my mother Mm -hmm. loves to tell the story about um, when I was five years old. Um, So we're Indian, which podcast listeners maybe wouldn't have gleaned, but they should have for my name because it's like really overtly Indian. Um, So we had like rice with dinner, basically every single night. (laughs) And I really hated rice when I was a kid. Um, and we lived next door to a cop and my mom used to be like, if you don't finish your rice, I'm going to go get Paul Holland, the cop we live next door to, and he's going to take you to jail. 
That's a classic cop name. Yeah. Paul Collins. This is not a real person. No, this is a construct. I was five. And I remember very clearly. And my mom says I even said to her, like, I knew that I wasn't breaking any laws by not eating my rice. But I also 100% believed that they'd arrest me because the police are corrupt. (laughs) Um, So I felt that since I was five, so whatever. But yeah, like throw the statue in the river, you know, like defund the police, overturn stuff, be an anarchist and start your own literary magazine, you know, start your own cultural venue, start your own stuff with your friends. It's all cool. But kind of slightly kind of tangentially related then, like, so we're all being pressured the idea about the decolonizing the academy and a lot of it is lip service right I a lot of it is oh 99.8 percent of it's lip service yeah oh but we put so-and-so an author on the course we we on the course. we're okay everyone we're okay <laughs> but you know like what are your thoughts on just the sort of discourses around that decolonization narrative coming into university <laughs> small like, d what? big d like yeah is is, is it a big you know big d swigging competition like yeah it's it's definitely turning into a d swimming competition that is for sure. <laughs> i mean the thing about decolonization is how can you decolonize within the structures and frameworks of a fundamentally colonial institution mm-hmm. big d you know? like it just doesn't make sense and like anybody who thinks about it for like more than a minute could see like there's a problem right like Mm -hmm. you can't decolonize the university from within the university because the university is a fundamentally colonialist construct Mm -hmm. right please go away and read Mm -hmm. some Audrey Dord thank you yeah absolutely and like read some like Sylvia Winter and read some Mm -hmm. like you know Latin American school um and I also think, you know, it's like everything else. It's like, it's just become another marketized metric in many ways. And like, I will say, like, I yeah. do I do a lot of work around like decolonization of my own institution. And I believe the sincerity of the people who are sponsoring that work. But I also think like there are some really fundamental issues. Because like, firstly, during decolonization is a process. It's not a state yeah. of being, right? So mm-hmm. like- No, no, but are you saying we can't just complete it? Like, I'm pretty sure that's what- they're hoping for right like we did it also just can i can i just put it out there that the uk government and the uk is not racist yes i was literally just gonna say that yeah i was gonna be like it's just like how we're not racist anymore and oh my god did you guys know that slavery and enslavement had like a good side too Oh my god, they they got an education. There's two sides to every story, and also, oh yes, my god, BT Dubs. What about the railroads? <laughs> um, Did they know it's Christmas thing? favorite thing I ever put on Twitter was so like I actually like did a ton of research into the railroads in Ghana um for my second book, and like the railroads. They weren't there to help people. They weren't there to help people. They they were there to expropriate Shocker. resources. Um, anyway, Extraction. Yeah. imagine extract. <laughs> um, maybe that should have been my academic Tinder bio. Extract, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, like the decolonization thing at the universities. I mean, you know. It's like a couple of years ago where implicit bias training was like hugely in vogue, um, which thank God seems to be starting to stop, even though like the whole concept is so absurd. Like, do you think a two hour workshop's gonna fix racism? Gosh, do you think no, someone they do. done that workshop? Just like, you know, a llama can fix your depression. Yeah, absolutely. Or like this green IKEA grass carpet is gonna yeah. cure you. Solve your anxiety, it's totally yeah. fine. Um, so like there's that level of it. And then there's a level of like you realize it's not about individuals, right? And then it's like, the whole thing is just so stupid. And I think the decolonization, the way in which it's being instrumentalized by um, United Kingdom universities is increasingly, I mean, I think it's increasingly hitting that sort of level of instrument of, of performativity and fabulousness. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's also like the term, the term like decoloniality is a really dense and complex intellectual term with multiple genealogies and meanings and schools of thought. And 
like none of that's acknowledged in the mainstream discourse. Instead, it's used as like this lazy shorthand for like diversity, which it's not. Or like, because yeah. you know, like you could teach a decolonial Dickens class if you wanted to, where all you read was Dickens, but you taught it decolonially. Like you could totally do that. It would be actually really easy with Dickens, I think, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's not about, you know, just slapping Americana on your reading list and calling it a day, you know? Um, <laughs> So yeah, I think, and I think yeah, that ultimately, like, obviously purple hibiscus though would solve it. Obviously, that would solve everything. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I do think that like it, it is really damaging. I think it's really damaging when these kinds of terms are instrumentalized in this way because again, it's like it means the real work's never going to be done. So do you think centers like the one that you are currently? Because did you just recently take up the kind of heading up of the Black Humanities? Uh yeah, last August. Yeah last August so like do you think those are spaces that are um I don't know perhaps kind of providing a slightly different groundwork of a different different sort of organizational structures the ability to kind of like because I think for me one of the the things about doing any kind of decolonial work within the university system is that it's in the system right and all those systems are in themselves inherently biased and kind of like and violent frustrating and violent really violent. violent really harmful actually really 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 fucking ableist on top of everything else as well um so like, is there a sense in which kind of establishing those sort of research centers, is that something that you are taking into account in terms of like trying to think about how to restructure or kind of create a different sort of systemic? Yeah, process? how do we burn it down? How do we burn it, Madhu? How do we throw I mean, it in the river? Like, it's so hard, right? Because like, first of all, I have to be totally honest. I don't want to burn down UKHE because I like, my cushy permanent professorial job. <laughs> I like cats, not reading. The cats need their organic Swedish cat food that comes in recyclable Tetra packs. And, you know, like this is the thing for like, I think all of us, right, who are in these systems is that we are in various ways and to various extents invested in the systems that we are critiquing. And, yeah. um, I really like in that book, The Ironic Spectator, one of the points she makes is like the kind of central tension of humanitarianism is that humanitarianism is an industry that is predicated on pretending to want to end the condition of its own possibility. Mm. And in a sense, we're like that, right? Because like, I mean, come on, like, what would I be doing for a living if I weren't a university professor? Like, I don't know. Like, what would I actually, like, there's, I don't know what I'd be doing. Like, it's it's impossible to think about another job that would afford me um, the things that I like about this job. Do you know what I mean? Like, who knows? Um, so that's, like, one thing that's really tough, right? Like, I think, how do you dismantle a system that you yourself were a beneficiary of? Yes. And yeah, I don't, I don't know how to do that. And I think as well, like how it's, it's really hard when you're inside something to see what other possibilities there are, but like with our center, um, we, we, we really try, like, I don't know that we're doing like a different radical model or whatever, because we are a university research center. Like, you know, we're not exactly the Paris commune. Um, but we, we try to, for example, adhere to collective decision-making structures. So I am the director, but we have like a larger management group that anyone can join. It's just whoever wants to. And we do try to do things kind of collaboratively. Um, we work extensively with, um, groups, organizations and individuals outside of the university, because I think you can't be serious about like decolonization or liberation if you if you think knowledge only exists within the university. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So like we try to do those sorts of things, but you know it's tough, it's tricky. No, absolutely, and um, I think we have a really really important final question that's um, kind of related. Maybe more, yeah. yeah, maybe more critical than some of the decolonial chat that you've been talking about so we're talking about like this notion about like professionalism and what can we get away with we're going like like cushy institutional stuff so if you were there any times where you couldn't cite someone as a co-author that you really wanted to like collaboration like i talk about collaboration these sorts of things like i cited my dog in my thesis um mainly because my supervisor told me that i couldn't so, you know, if you had to 
cite someone as a co-collaborator there was maybe a total lie but you just who's your fantasy co-collaborator well I mean it's gotta be the big JC thanks dog (laughs) (laughs) fantastic (laughs) we we need more JC and academic no we don't (laughs) but but it is interesting right that kind of like you're just saying in terms of like the forms of democratic kind of organization and collaboration and I think citation is one of those elements to do with it right so Max um, Liberon who runs the kind of feminist anti-colonial science institute has a really good um, position on this in terms of the lab that she runs where everybody is cited in every paper because everybody has been part of the paper's process um, down to the lab assistants and um, people who have perhaps only like you know been around to soundboard an idea rather than the kind of the main like quote-unquote author um, with a capital I mean, a. they should also be including, like, the people who clean the lab, like, those sorts of things. No, exactly. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. They, they they include the kind of, like, the custodians, I'm pretty sure, as yeah. well, and, like, things like Which that. And obviously, Yeah, because that's all part of the system that allows us to produce this kind of work in our cushy, cushy jobs. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, because you have to think about, like, the people who enable the conditions of possibility for yeah. you to write your 75 books since 2005. Yeah. <laughs> no no it's just eight hours of sleep Mm -hmm. yeah I think if you read that tweet properly it's actually completely contingent on you as an individual like what is getting in your way I mean I think the main thing that's getting in my way is that I only sleep for 7.75 hours a night this means that is sleep becoming refable I I like to think that my greatest impact at least according to my closest to friends and family has been helping people sleep because they have this stuff and they're like this is super boring and awesome. um, <laughs> I'll listen to this podcast and just cock out it'll be great We've been Long My Praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five-star output deserves five-star reviews. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing longmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at longmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter small p and the number February 11th, 1990. Our shape this week is the snowy peaks of Mount Kilimanjaro. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye.